Well, this morning we continue in our series Expectancy in the Gospel of Mark and just a verse-by-verse journey through the Gospel of Mark. And I would invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. We're going to read verse 35 through 41 in just a moment. And as you turn there, let me ask you this. How many, of, how many here love to maximize your benefits when you have a benefit somewhere? How many of you love to maximize that? Maybe a better way to think about it is when you have a coupon or you have multiple coupons. How many of you like to try to maximize the benefit you're going to receive from those coupons? I, I do that. I was just at Dick's uh, Sporting Goods yesterday. I had my, my boys there and we were getting just soccer gear. We're getting ready for the upcoming soccer season. And I walked in there and my wife had armed me with probably six or eight different coupons that could be used in some way or another uh, for soccer gear at Dick's Sporting Goods. So I walked in, we had an associate who just was, a, was an amazing help, helped us get all the different gear and things we needed. And then I pulled out of my pocket this pile of coupons and I spread them all over the counter. I said, help me, help me maximize what I can get out of all this. And so he sat there and he starts looking at coupons and go, we can do this one first and this one and that one. And, and then he goes, well, let me just do this. I mean, he walked me to the register and took my coupon, my coupon magazine and spread it on the counter and did it with a guy. But at the end of the day, he helped me maximize my benefit. And I'm sure there's others here that uh, you love to maximize the benefits that you may have. Well, how many of you love to maximize the benefits of God's Word in your life? Just to maximize the benefits of God's Word. The best way that we can maximize the benefits of God's Word in our lives is to not let God's Word merely be something that happens in our lives in this room, in this moment, when we look at a few verses, but rather to expose your heart daily, your mind daily, to the truth and the authority and the power of God's Word. The best way that the Holy Spirit can take God's Word and the truth, and He'll use this moment from the things we're going to speak about in a few moments But the best way that the Holy Spirit can maximize what He wants to do in your life is to, as you come into the place on Sunday mornings, throughout the week, your heart's already been exposed to the truth and the authority and the power of God's Word in your life. So your Christian way of thinking is not a matter of gathering together on a Sunday morning for a few moments and looking at a select passages of Scripture. A Christian frame of mind comes from living a life that's been a mind frame and a mindset and a thought life that is influenced and shaped and formed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that happens daily when we're exposing our hearts and our minds to the truth of God's Word. So I would encourage you, the things that we look at today in Mark chapter 4, take and continue to look at them and prayerfully consider them throughout the week. And as you begin to expose your heart to other places and other parts of God's Word, look at what He continues to speak and continues to renew in your heart as we keep our hearts open before Him. Look with me in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse number 35. It says, That day when evening came, He said to His disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion and the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. 
When we look at God's Word and when we explore God's Word, when we read the story, sometimes it's what helps us understand it more is when we understand the, the area and the region and the, the place that's being talked about. And the, the lake, the place where Jesus took His disciples and told them, let's hop in this boat, let's go across this lake, it's called what is called the Sea of Galilee. It has a few different names in Scripture. You'll see it called a few different things, but it's the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, by today's standards, would not be a sea, but really is a very large lake. It's about 13 miles long, and at its widest point is about seven miles wide. Just a very large lake. And what makes it unique and what may seem insignificant to you but is the, is the topography and the geography around it. See, the Sea of Galilee sits 695 feet below sea level. So it sits at a, at a lower elevation than most. And then immediately around it, and we have some pictures that will be on the screen that gives you a bit of a picture of what the Sea of Galilee actually looks like. On one side, you have these steep ravines that, that while the, the Sea of Galilee itself sits 695 feet below sea level, on another, one side of it, you have these steep ravines that immediately shoot up about 1,500 feet above the lake. And then on the other side, you have the Golan Heights, which is another 3,000, towering 3,000 feet above the lake. So you have this interesting scenario taking place. You have this lake, almost like a bowl-like setting, sitting down at below sea level. You have these high, huge heights and mountains and hills around it, and it becomes a perfect condition for the perfect storm just to roll in at any point. That still happens today. The, the combination of the climate of, of the winds coming in and the, the lower elevation creates this perfect climate so that storms can almost, almost suddenly just pop up and begin to brew and stir in that moment and begins to just swirl over it. And it's not uncommon to see storms hit the lake that will easily create eight to ten foot waves in a matter of moments. Very serious storms can happen in just a moment. And it's, you look at that and you might get that, that picture and understand, take that and then begin to apply it into the story that we've just read. So it's with that in mind that I would like to come back to the passage that we've looked at. And often I'll give you a number of points that you can apply or a number of observations. But I, what I'd really like to do this morning is do a little bit different. It's just to come back through and reread the story a verse or two at a time. And as we reread the story together, just pause on each verse and really just share with you some observations as we look at this story together. And then we'll end service today with a time to pray together. But looking from verse 35, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go to the other side. Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to the other side. Do you notice something in this story? Notice who suggested the trip? Who suggested the trip? Jesus suggested the trip. My Bible, if, if you have a Bible that's been divided out in nice little neat paragraphs for you to be able to read it, there, there's things that have been inserted into Scripture that are not actually the biblical text themselves, but they're to help you and I be guided in the reading of it and keeping track of where we're reading. And maybe it even gives us a summary. And at the top of mine, the verses are things that were inserted to help you and I keep track of where we're reading. But at the top of mine, it has this, this little paragraph in bold, the, this little heading in bold, and it says, Jesus calms the storm. Does anybody else have that in your Bible? It says, Jesus calms the storm. I think it would be better, better paraphrase, not to say Jesus calms the storm. He did that. But I think, I think the better paraphrase, the better heading would be, Jesus suggested the disciples went out into the middle of a storm. It was his idea. It was Jesus' idea to go out into the lake. 
in the Gospel of Luke, who gives the same story, the same account of it, he adds this one small detail in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 8, verse 22. And he says this, So they got in the boat, meaning the disciples, so they got in the boat and set out. Luke writes matter, very matter-of-fact, just kind of tells you how it is. It says, Jesus suggested, let's go out to the other side. He says, let's go to the other side. And Luke says, so the disciples got in the boat and went out. I have a feeling that Luke's peace would be missing if the storm was already sitting on the lake. That if the storm was already out on the lake and Jesus said, hey, fellas, let's go to the other side of the lake, these men, being seasoned fishermen that they were, would have looked at Jesus and probably would have said, you know, I know you, you think and you say you're the son of God, but I think you're crazy right now. We are not going out into this storm. We're not going out to row out into this because we know, this, we know what that's like. You, you're not a seasoned fisherman, so why don't you just trust us in this one? And when I look at that, it says that Jesus suggested that they go across the lake, and as they're crossing the lake, they get into the storm. It tells me that it's a lot easier to trust him when there's no storm in front of us. It's a lot easier to trust Jesus when there's no storm that we're looking at in front of us. When it's a clear path, when it's going to be easy, when the journey will be calm, that it's very easy to say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. But I wonder if the response would be the same if the storm was in front of us and Jesus was calling us to do something. I wonder if the disciples would have climbed in the boat just as fast and just as readily set sail if they looked out and saw the storm building in the middle of the, of the sea where they were headed. Jesus suggested they go out into the storm before the storm had ever started. I have times where I've talked with individuals and talked with couples or individuals who were committed to following God and they'll sit and they'll tell me, God put this on my heart to do this and they'll describe what it is he's put in front of them to do. And I'll tell them, I'll say, that, is, that, sounds, that sounds great, go for it. That sounds exciting and they're telling me how God's working and what he's doing and the moment they set out to do it, it especially the larger the faith step it may be that they take, that it seems that issues and the storms begin to settle over their lives. And in the midst of those storms settling over their lives as they've been taking faith steps, at times I've had some begin to question and, and raise questions of if they're really following God or perhaps begin to deviate from the course that they initially set out when the sailing seemed smooth. And for those that are there, and perhaps there are some that are here this morning, I encourage them to hang on to what Jesus said to you before the storm started. Hang on to what Jesus said to you when you began to row before the storm ever came into picture. See, Jesus makes it clear that he always sees the other side of the storm. He made it clear. He said, let us go over to the other side. He made it clear where they were headed and he saw the other side of the storm even when they could not. And friends, in your life and in my life, when it comes to faith steps that you may be taking and the journey that you may be on, Jesus sees the other side of the storm even when you cannot see it yourself. Storms have a way of trying to disorient us and trying to get us to abandon the course and the direction that God will put in front of us. And I would just encourage you this morning to hang on to what Jesus has told you, regardless of what comes from the time that he says it to the time that you see it come to pass. Hang on to what it is that Jesus promises and speaks into your heart. 
He always has the final word. He always is the final authority, regardless of what storms and seasons and trials may come between the time that you hear Him speak it into your heart and the time that you see its fulfillment on the other side of the shore. If Jesus says you're going to the other side, then you need to trust Him that you are going to the other side. Is trusting Jesus in the journey even when the journey does not look the way it did when you began? Jesus said, let's go to the other side, and the disciples climbed in the boat. The second thing, let's look on in verse number 36. It says, leaving the crowds behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. It says, leaving the crowds behind, they took him just as he was into the boat. I want you to notice a few things. Those words, they took him just as he was, reveals a lot. Jesus has just been ministering almost nonstop, day and night, with the crowds gathered around him. And some of the stories we've looked at together, it's so intense that Jesus can't even eat. The crowd is so packed in that he physically cannot eat. And I think that also means that the the demand was so great that he could not eat because of the demand and the need. And we see on Sabbath at the moment the, the Sabbath ends that people are flocking to the house and he's ministering late until the night. And there's a point where the disciples look at Jesus and they can see the, the physical fatigue. They can see the, the mental fatigue. They can see the, I think, the emotional fatigue, the spiritual fatigue. Just being drained of giving, giving, giving. And I think that reminds each one here, for each one of us, that if you're involved in ministry in any way, that the importance of pausing and renewing and allowing God to do a work in you, not to continually always be doing a work through you. We encourage our workers who are serving, whether it be in the children's ministry or in in any of the ministry places, that if you're not slated to serve on a Sunday, whether it be a greeter, or usher, any number of ministries, if you're not slated to serve on a Sunday, don't use that as a Sunday to be gone. Use it as a Sunday to sit and receive, to be renewed and to be restored. And we see that Jesus, the disciples and Jesus together recognize this time to just break away. And so it says they took him just as he was. And Taking him just as he was would mean he did not pack an extra change of clothes. They did not pack a meal. They did not pack snacks. They did not pack drinks. They didn't didn't even notify family. The demand was there, and they immediately said, we've got to move, and it's time to get in the boat. And they get in the boat, and they begin to move. And then the second thing I want you to see when it comes to the story in verse number 36, it says there were also other boats with him. It's an incredibly small detail that when I read this story, in fact, when I have often read this before, it's an incredibly small detail that I've often overlooked and skimmed over myself, but there are other boats on the lake with Jesus. There are other boats in the storm. It's not just the boats with the disciples and the boat with Jesus. There are other boats in the storm. I guarantee you that while it may be a small detail of the story, If you were in one of the other boats, it was not a small detail to you. You were in the same storm, the same hurricane-type storm that they're in the middle of, and it didn't appear that you had Jesus in your boat. In fact, I think the other boats didn't even know Jesus was on the lake with them. And when I read those simple lines that there were other boats with him on the lake, It reminds me and it really tells me that when Jesus calmed the storm, he calmed the storm of others too, even when they didn't see or realize it was Jesus who did it. They didn't realize that he was demonstrating his care and his power for them, even when they didn't realize that he was there. 
it means that he cares about them just as much as he cares about his disciples. He cared about ones who had no knowledge or understanding that he was there. I think that fits well with what John Pitterly has just shared about when we think of missions. Oftentimes when we come to God in prayer, it's very tempting to present our needs and our requests and the things that we're aware of. And and that's very true. But we should also be presenting those who have no knowledge or understanding that Jesus cares with them and He's with them and wants to take care of their storm as well as they call out to Him. That Jesus is with them on the lake in the storm even when they don't realize it. But I'm also reminded of when when I read this story and it says there are other boats with Him in the storm... But I think we have a tendency to get caught up in our own little world when our storms come and when adversity comes that we often fail to see others and realize that others are going through their storms as well. A number of years ago, I, uh, had, I had the privilege to attend a conference in Missouri and, and was there and we were staying with my in-laws. They, they live in the same place as well. So I was attending a conference the Assemblies of God had put on. And as I was at the conference, and it was a multi, multi-day thing through most of the week, I was there, and, and being in Missouri in the middle of summer, very hot, very sticky type time of year, and, and we were there, and at, towards the end of the conference, I believe it was the last day or maybe the second to last day, I had gotten up early, I'd gone to the conference, and uh, I, just be, I was battling a headache all day, and just thinking, it's just this heat, it's just the teachings, a number of things. And then on one of the breaks towards the end of the day, I went and I looked in the mirror and I realized I hadn't realized my eye had done this the other day, but I'm battling this, this massive headache and I realized one of my, one of my um, pupils had dilated and the other one had constricted, which is not a good thing. That's not a good thing. And, and I'm looking in the mirror, and, or the mirror and I'm thinking, that looks a little bit odd. And so I went, got in the car, went home. My, my father-in-law was a retired nurse and had him look at my eye and he's like, that's not a good thing. I'm like, yeah, I'd kind of arrived at that part. And, and uh, he said, you know, really what you're experiencing are the signs of a possible stroke. And so I immediately called, found a clinic, ran to the clinic, talked to the doctor, you know, making sure that this place will take our insurance from out of state, a number of things. So I'm there at the clinic. The doctor come, walks in the room, looks at me real quick, and he says, you need to get to the ER. So I'm going to call ahead. So he called ahead to the ER. And I, so I'm like, well, this, is, this is great. You know, we're just going along, trying to figure out what's going on. So I go to the ER, and I arrive in, arrive in the ER, and I walk up, and the ER is packed. I walk up to the ER. It's packed. I can look around the waiting room. There's people waiting to be seen. They've got people waiting in the hallways with, in wheelchairs. They've got just a number of things, everything else. It's, like it's clear that the wait's going to be a long time. And I can look at people, and their, their needs, some of them are pretty severe. They're not dying, but they're very severe. And I remember walking up to the counter, and I think to the average person, I'm walking up, and I look like a fairly healthy young man walking up, walking up to the counter. And I just explained to them what's happening. I said, the doctor called ahead. And in a matter of a moment, it's like, boom, they've got a nurse coming, grabbing me, beginning to wheel me back, throw me in a wheelchair. I'm like, I can walk. They said, no, you need to get in a wheelchair. They walked me to the back. Ended up, nothing was wrong. I had a problem with my contact, and it had created a, a reaction in my eye. And the eye was causing the headache, a number of things. I'm like, oh my goodness. But I remember that moment, standing at the ER desk and kind of just waiting and seeing the commotion as soon as I had arrived and looking around the ER room. And I, re- I just remember it stood out to me, the number of needs that were there. And I also remember seeing on a few faces, the moment I walked up, and these people, I could tell, had been waiting for a while. The moment I walked up and spoke to the person, I immediately was given access, was given care, and it was happening immediately. And I could tell by some of their faces, I'm like, they were like, 
what about me and my need? What about me and my waiting? What about me and what I'm going through? And I think you and I have that. Just think about the next time you're at a restaurant and you watch a couple who walks in and they get seated before you do. You're going to have those same feelings of, what about me? What about me? What about what I'm going through and my waiting? And when I look at that, I'm reminded, much like the disciples in the boat, that I think there came a point where the disciples did not see nor care if other boats were in the water with them. They only focused on their lives, their storm, their circumstances, their trials. See, storms have a way of turning our attention inward and our focus downward on us. And when we do that, we lose sight of others and we forget that there's still other boats on the lake. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and it's just describing the work that God does in our lives and He does in your life. And it describes God this way. It says that God is the God of all comfort. It says He's the God of all comfort. And we look at that and we're like, mm, that sounds nice. God is the God of all comfort. And I'll quote that at times at funerals for families who are maybe going through seasons, and I'll remind them, God says He's the God of all comfort. And there's 100% accuracy in stating that. But when you look at that verse and that, that declaration of who God is, that God is the God of all comfort, and you look at it in the entire context of, context of what the passage is saying, it says that God is the God of all comfort, and He allows His comfort to flow into our lives so that we, in turn, can comfort others in their seasons and trials and difficulties of life. It says that He does not make us comfort, He doesn't comfort us to make us comfortable. He comforts us to make us comforters. So that when we go through a trial, when you go through a storm, when you go through an adversity, you experience the grace and the peace and the sovereignty of God in the midst of it. That while you don't see the answers, you're trusting Him through it and you can see how He sees you through it. But at the end of the day, He says He didn't just do that for your benefit. He did that for the benefit of the people that He was going to place your life in. To make you a comfort into their lives when they're going through things. Now, when I have the privilege to go into the hospital and to, to visit with someone before surgery, specifically who's someone, someone who's having some sort of knee surgery, because I've had four knee surgeries, I feel like I'm able to relate to them maybe a little bit more than someone who's never had any type of knee surgery whatsoever. I'm reminded that because of my experiences... I have the ability to minister and offer something and relate to them in a way that others may not be able to. When you go through your storm and you feel like you're the only boat on the lake, God wants you to remind, be remember, to remember that there are others going through storms and challenges and adversities as well. And as you keep your heart and your eyes on Him, allowing His peace to settle over you, allowing His mind frame to become your mind frame, allowing His answers to be the answers you need, that He also can use you as a blessing and a benefit in the lives of those that He's placing around you. That your storm can be a blessing in the lives of the storms of others. And through that, we let others see that Jesus doesn't just care about our storm. He cares about their storm. He cares about their boat in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the storm as well. Let's look on in verse 37. It says, A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And let's look at verse 38 as well. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion or on a pillow, some of your Bibles may say. 
And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Archaeologists have discovered a, a boat that is right from the era of when Jesus was, was on this earth. And the boat that they've discovered would really be much like what Jesus and his disciples would have been out in this storm in. The average boat in that day in this boat was about 26 feet long. It was about seven feet wide and about four feet deep. A very small boat. And a boat like that, very typical for using in this type of, of travel that Jesus and his disciples are doing, a boat like that would accommodate maybe 12 to 15 men, 12, 12 comfortably, 15 maybe crowded. And in the very back, it had a, a spot, in the, in the very back of the boat, it had a spot where, where Jesus could have really laid up underneath part of a, a border covering that's there. And we see that Jesus is kind of tucked away in this little pillow sleeping while the storm is raging around him. I think the fact that he can sleep through the storm speaks to just how much he gives and gave in ministry on the, uh, on the beach just before they struck out in the storm. But it wasn't a large boat. And it was in a boat like this that, that Jesus and his disciples are there. And in verse 37, it says, in verse 37 in, in my Bible, it says, a furious squall came up. Other translations might say a great windstorm. In the original wording, the language that, that Mark writes with and the other Gospels uh, accounts write this as well, the word that they use speaks of a great or a furious. And it suggests something like a fu- the fury of a hurricane being unleashed in that moment. It wasn't just a storm. It was a mega storm. In Luke's account, again, just giving very matter-of-fact details, Luke makes it clear that the disciples were in great danger. The threat was very real. Their lives were, were very much in peril. That they, they were in a very dangerous place. And it's in the midst of this storm and the disciples reacting to it. We can't forget these men are seasoned fishermen. And it's in the midst of them trying to save their lives to keep their boat from capsizing that they're working and they're trying to survive. And I think it's in the fierceness and the chaos of the moment. I think they totally forgot that they had Jesus tucked away on a pillow in the back of their boat. I think they totally forgot he's there. He's in the very back. He's out of sight, out of mind. The storm has become the focus. These men know what to do in storms. They know how to solve the problems themselves. They know how to tackle their storms. If they did remember at first that Jesus was there, they're like, don't let him sleep. Let him enjoy his pillow. We got this. And as the storm continued to grow and continue to build, they began to act and function as if Jesus wasn't even there. They began to try to solve the problem. They began to lean on what they knew. They leaned on their abilities. They leaned on what they had been taught. They leaned on their instincts. They leaned on their actions. They leaned on each other. They leaned on everything but Jesus. They acted as if Jesus wasn't even there. And finally, when someone, and I'd imagine perhaps Peter, Someone looks back and says, wait a second, we got another hands, set of hands back here that could be bailing water. They wake Jesus up. I really don't think they walked up to Jesus and said, Jesus, hey, Jesus, Jesus, we, we could use your help here. I don't think that happened that way. In fact, we've, we've walked some of our boys through how to politely wake up somebody. I don't think these guys use the polite method of waking somebody up. I think they can. they're shaking Jesus, they're screaming, and probably when they realize what Peter's screaming at, their others start screaming, Jesus, wake up, wake up, wake up, get up, get up, get up, we need you, and a number of things. Just this chaotic screaming, trying to wake him up, trying to stir him up, poking him, yelling, prodding him, trying to get him up. But look at the words they use. They say, Jesus, 
Look in verse, in verse number 38. It says, Teacher, don't you care that we drown? Don't you care that we drown? For a time, they acted as if Jesus wasn't there. And then when they finally acknowledged that he was there, they accused him of not caring. They accused him of a lack of love. What they did was they assumed his lack of action meant a lack of love and care in their lives. They made a jump that we often are guilty of doing, of saying, God, I don't see you working, so that must mean that you're not caring. We, they did what we often do, that when the storm comes and continues and doesn't end and doesn't end the way that we want it to, to us it speaks to a lack of care and a lack of love in our lives by God our Father. The disciples didn't see Jesus doing anything, so they assumed that he didn't care. And see, when you and I make that leap of that leap in our actions, in our mind frame, that a lack of action from God's part means a lack of care on his part, that's faulty theology. That's not the theology, that's not scripture to say that, that God works on our time frame or that he sees things sp- specifically from our perspective. In Isaiah, God makes it clear. He says, His ways are not his ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. And sometimes riding out the storm and recognizing that he's with you in the storm, even when the storm doesn't end the way it should or the way you think it should or the way your skills say it should, is coming to trust him and lean on him in spite of it. But the fact that he does or what he does or does not do in the middle of your storm really speaks nothing to his lack of love or care in your life or what you're going through. And we can see that with the disciples. Often when, with my children, when they head out to school specifically, and I know that'll begin in just a, a number of days here, one of the passages that I'll often read to my children, sometimes two or three times a week, I'll just read it repetitively in their lives, and sometimes I'll go through it, and just I'll substitute their name into a couple of places, but it's Psalm 121. I want to read this to you, Psalm 121, verses 1 through 8. It says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber or sleep. And sometimes where it says Israel, I'll go back and I'll substitute in my children's names as I read the passage to them and say, he who watches over Kelsey does not sleep. He who watches over, and I'll put their names in there, reminding them that God is faithful and that he's with you. It says, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon at night. And a little note I've written in the side of my Bible by those two verses, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon at night. That tells me that nothing gets to me without coming through God first. That he is absolutely, completely, and totally in control. The Lord will keep you from all harm and he will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. If you're in a a storm or a trial or a hardship or an adversity or a season that just never seems to end, the psalmist makes it clear that much like the disciples did, the answer is not found in finding the end of the storm. The answer is found in fixing your eyes on Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the, the beginner, the source of your faith, the author and perfecter, the one who completes it, the one who, who, who makes it whole. It says, get your eyes and your thoughts fixed on Jesus. 
Then regardless of how furious or how hard or how, how intense your storm, your season may be, he says, get your thoughts on Jesus. And the moment the disciples got their focus off the storm and its effects and onto Jesus, everything changed. Look in verse 39. In verse 39, it says this. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. The word Jesus speaks to the storm and speaks into that moment. The word literally means be muzzled. And it's actually the same words he uses in Mark chapter 1 when he deals with a demon-possessed man. And some, some experts even believe that this storm, because of its fierceness and its fury and how fast it, it surfaced on the lake in the moment, that it even perhaps this storm even was demonically inspired and induced to try to come against Jesus and his disciples But Jesus speaks and instantly it's calm. He speaks and instantly there's peace. If you've ever been out on a on the water or in a lake and there's or in in the ocean and there's been rough seas, you'll know that once a storm ends, there is a little bit of a calming of the choppy waters, and it takes a little bit for it to go from intense storm to absolute calm. But this says that when Jesus spoke these words, be muzzled, be peace, and be still, in some Bibles it might say, it says quiet, tells the storm to quiet and be still. It says in a moment there's instant peace. That in a moment the storm is gone and the water is completely calm, completely at peace. That Jesus speaks and everything responds. I think the peace that Jesus speaks to in this moment and in this storm teaches us much, but two things specifically about the peace that he brings. First, I want you to notice Jesus goes from peace to peace. Jesus is asleep. He's at peace in the middle of a storm, a raging storm where everyone else thinks they're going to die. Jesus is in absolute peace. He wakes up, looks around, says, quiet, be still, and peace. He goes from peace to peace. I think that really speaks to a lot in our lives about centering our hearts and our minds and our thoughts on Jesus. That in that moment, Jesus is demonstrating what you see in Isaiah 26.3. Isaiah 26.3, God promises, he says, I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. That Jesus moves from peace to peace because he knows at the end of it all, his life is in the Father's hands. And it really doesn't matter what storm he wakes up in. God is still in control. That there's a peace in your life that God wants to carry you from peace to peace. Now, that doesn't mean that the enemy wants to try to steal it. He's going to try to disrupt it. He's going to do whatever he can to to mess with it. But it's making a choice to say, my peace is not found in what's happening around me. My peace is found in the one who lives inside of me. Of trusting and recognizing the presence of Jesus with us. And then the second thing I want you to see when it comes to this When the disciples refocused on Jesus, they found the peace that he offered. That when they refocused on Jesus, their eyes were no longer outside the boat. They were focused on Jesus in the boat. They found the peace that Jesus offered. The peace Jesus demonstrated shows us that peace is far more than just the absence of problems. It's far more than just the absence of a storm. It's far more than just the absence of an obstacle or a difficulty. Peace comes from not the absence of things, but the presence of someone. 
the one who's called the Prince of Peace, that he reigns in peace, he rules in peace, he establishes peace, that peace is the very atmosphere that he creates and he brings wherever he's invited, that Jesus brings and restores peace. So that means for you and I, that when we live in fear and live in anxiety, we are choosing to forfeit the peace of his presence with us and are settling for, the absence, for, for an absence rather than his presence. It's choosing to settle in his presence. Again, doesn't mean there's going to be things to try to steal that, to try to disrupt it. But it's a choice to center and fix your thoughts on Jesus. When Jesus calmed the storm for the disciples, and spoke peace over it. The story says that they were absolutely amazed. Look in verse 41, 40 and 41. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. See, the focus was never to address the storm. The storm was never the focus of the story. That's, the, that's what we focus on. But the storm was never the focus of the story. The focus was to address their lack of faith. The focus gets all the attention, the storm gets all the attention because it's what makes all the noise. But Jesus uses it to draw their attention to their faith. And he doesn't just say they have little faith, he says they have no faith. He says they have absolutely no faith. I think that if Jesus had told them, back, backing up to the beginning of the story, that if verse 35, instead of saying, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. I think if it read slightly different and it said, that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, hey guys, let's go to the other side. And on the way, we're going to reach a storm. It's going to test your faith, but we're still going to get there. I think that their response would have been a little bit different. That even in the middle of the rowing and the storm and everything else, they would have said, Jesus already told us this was coming. He's got this. Jesus already said the storm was coming and we we're getting the other side. I think that if he had told them the storm was coming and that along the way he was going to test their faith, that they would have been ready and they would have passed the test of faith without issue. And that tells me that the most revealing tests of our faith and our character are the ones that we will never see or realize until they're over. The greatest tests of faith and character in your life you will never see nor realize as a test of faith or your character until it's over. That when it's gone, and we look back and we recognize how we responded through it, how we leaned into Jesus through it. And I think in those times, we recognize places we can grow, places that he's been faithful and places that he wants to continue to grow us and stretch us in. We must keep in mind that everything God does in our lives is rooted in his desire to lead us to trust him more, to know him more. So how do you pass the test of faith you don't see? How do you pass the test of faith you don't see? You make Jesus your priority in every season and space and moment of life. You don't wait until the season comes to make him the priority. You don't make, wait until the challenge comes to make him your priority. You make Jesus your priority in every season and space and moment in life. Choose to value his presence in your life above all things. Value his presence in your life above anything and everything else that may come your way. That way, when the storms come, when the trials come, when the difficulties come, 
You have your mind fixed on Him and you find Jesus in the midst of it. You don't do like the disciples where you're trying to solve it on your own and then you remember somewhere along the way, oh, by the way, Jesus is in the boat with us. You fix your eyes on Jesus at the very beginning. The psalmist says in Psalm 68, he says, I've set the Lord always before me. Because He's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. The psalmist is saying the right hand was a place of priority, a place of prominence, a place of importance. And what the psalmist says, he says, I give God the utmost important place in my life at all times. And I will do whatever it takes in every moment to make sure that my heart and my mind is centered on Him. That in the midst of whatever I'm doing, I'm going to keep my mind focused and steadfast on His presence with me. To do everything that we can to keep, keep the character and nature of God in front of us. One of the, the Psalms in one translation, and I've, I've, I've referenced this passage to you before, so if, you've, if you're a regular with us, it shouldn't be any uh, new, new translation to you, but it's the Passion Translation. And he says in Psalm 37, 4, it says, feast on his faithfulness. Feast, feast on his faithfulness. Connect his past faithfulness in your life with your current circumstances. Look back and see how He's been faithful, how His presence has been there again and again and again and again and again in the highs and the lows and in the normal times and in every season that He's been there to feast on His faithfulness. And then, friends, one final observation from the story. While it may not have seemed like it to the disciples in the boat and in the storm, the storm was of limited time and location. The storm wasn't going to last forever. The storm had to end. It was of a specific season. It was strong, but it would pass. But the love and power and presence of Jesus was a constant in their life that they could lean on and trust on in every season and in every moment.